Listen, if you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to John chapter 6. Uh, we are going to finish out John 6 today, this morning, with the Lord's help. We're going to look at verses uh, 60 through 71. John chapter 6, we'll start at verse 60 and go to the end, verse 71. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, there I believe there are a few yep, back here on this table. Please grab one on your way out. That's our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy, a physical copy of God's Word. I'm going to read this, uh, then I'll pray and ask God to bless our time through the preaching, teaching of His Word. John chapter 6, begin, beginning at verse 60, and it reads, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, the, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are thankful to come before you this morning with this time of worship. <clears throat> Lord, I have a credible, incredible task in front of me to preach your word. Lord, I could never preach to the glory that you deserve. I am a limited man who is sinful, who is desperately in need of you this morning. So, Father, I ask that your spirit would rest upon me today, that you would work in and through me, that I would preach for your glory as I speak to your people and open your word that you would be exalted during this time. Father, help us to see what we cannot see on our own. Help us to see the purpose in these, these verses, the reason that you've given this word to us this morning, and help me to simply explain it as a messenger sent here for your glory. Please be exalted amongst us today during this time, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, you know, growing up, I was pretty amazed with science and biology. I was just fascinated with the study of the human body. I mean, the human body is this amazing and this complex creation that functions just the way God has designed it to in this environment that he has placed us in. I mean, what an incredible creation 
or complex creation, I should say, is the human body. You know, one of the things that I remember studying in school that's always grabbed my attention, one of the things that always stood out to me was the human body's natural response in a time of crisis or when a human being is facing a threatening situation. You may have all heard of this. I'm sure you studied this in school as well, and you may remember what is called the fight or flight response. So this is what happens. It's the human being's automatic physiological response, something that the human body does on its own. So see, what happens here is that the human body, when we perceive an immediate threat or some sort of impending danger, this threat activates the nervous system. And what happens is it triggers an acute response that prepares the body to either fight or to flee. So every person, when we're faced with these crisis situations in these moments of danger or emergency, we will respond one of two ways. We will either fight or engage, or we will flee or depart. You see, just as there are two responses when a human being is physically threatened, as we read the text before us this morning, we will see that there are only two responses to the words of Jesus Christ. That a person will either fully devote themselves to Jesus Christ and his words, they will submit themselves as true followers or disciples, or they will hear the words of Christ and they will depart or turn from him. You see, I've talked about the human being's natural response to a threat. Well, make no mistake about it, the words of Jesus Christ are very threatening as well. You see, the words of Jesus Christ create a crisis for human beings because they force us to render some sort of verdict or judgment about what Christ has said. You see, Christ threatens our sensibilities. When he says things like, unless you eat of my flesh or drink of my blood, you have no life in you. See, Jesus threatens our desire for autonomy or to govern or lead ourselves when he says things like, whoever wants to follow me must pick up his cross and lay down his life and deny himself. You see, Christ threatens our pride when he says things like, whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. You see, as we've looked at John chapter 6, that's really what this text has shown us. That's really what we've learned throughout this chapter is that Jesus' words are difficult. You see, the overwhelming majority of Jesus' peers despised his words. That's really been the purpose of this bread of life discourse. You see, Jesus was fully aware of the offensive and difficult nature of his claims. See, he had full knowledge that what he said would run off these disciples, that the crowd would disperse from being faced with the difficult things that he was saying to them. He knew in the end he'd be left with this small group of men, these 12 men that he had chosen. And that's really the main thrust of this particular portion of Scripture. See, the emphasis here is on the crowd's response to Jesus's words. So as we look at this passage this morning, I have a really simple outline for us. I have just two points. And here are these two points. Number one is the response of false disciples. 
And we'll see that in verses 60 through 66, the response of false disciples. And then point number two or heading number two would be the response of true disciples. The response of true disciples, and we'll see that in verses 67 through 71. You see, just as my outline is very simple for this morning, my goal and my aim for this morning is very simple as well. I simply want to say what Christ has said. I simply want to present his words, his message to everyone in this room this morning. And in hearing the words of Christ, I hope that we would each wrestle with the implications of what Jesus is saying and that everyone in this room would respond in some way. For those of us in this room that are, or for those in this room that are not genuine disciples, my hope is that through the preaching of the word, rather than turning from Christ, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would receive the words of Christ joyfully and humbly this morning, and that you would devote yourself fully to this glorious Savior who's come to redeem fallen humanity. But to everyone else in this room, to my brothers and sisters, to those of us in here who call ourselves Christians, my hope is that when you are faced with the difficult words of Christ here this morning, rather than flee, you would look to him like Peter does and say, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, my hope is to encourage you, brothers and sisters, into a deeper and greater devotion to Christ Jesus, to draw your attention away from yourself and from the world and from society and to fix your gaze, gaze on this great Savior, the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. So with that goal in mind, let's walk through these verses together. See, verse 60 begins here with a reaction from this crowd. See, this group of people, they've been pursuing Jesus Christ ever since his miraculous feeding of the 5,000, 5, excuse me. And for the better part of John chapter, chapter 6, Jesus has engaged in this extended discourse with these people. And when this section opens, verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now let's stop right here just for a moment because I think it's important that, that we have an accurate understanding of the word disciples. It's essential to understanding this text. So what is meant by this term disciples? You see, though these people here are introduced as disciples, this does not mean that they are genuine followers of Christ. So the Greek word that is used here describes a person that would attach themselves to someone as a student or as a learner. So these folks, to a certain extent, had attached themselves to Christ. They had committed themselves to following him. But this term says nothing about the sincerity of their following. You see, these disciples are not designated in the same category as the 12. You see, although John refers to them as disciples, as he's writing here, as we will soon find out, they are not genuinely committed to Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, this text is incredibly important to establishing one of the central ideas of John's gospel. 
You see, the Gospel of John is often referred to as the Gospel of Belief. And that's because he consistently focuses on this theme of belief throughout his gospel account. And here what he's doing is presenting to us a portrait of false believers. You see, these folks were only disciples insofar as they were following Jesus, not because they desired him, but only what he could give. And I'm not talking about the salvation or redemption that he provides as the bread of life. That's not what they were after here. So they weren't genuine disciples. One commentator explains it this way, and I think it's helpful. He says, quote, just as there is faith and faith, so there are also disciples and disciples, end quote. See, brothers and sisters, this is a reminder, or I should say a warning to us, that there are many who identify themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ, but they're not genuinely following him. See, just as there were many disciples among this crowd that were standing with Jesus on that day, there are many false disciples amongst us today. Now, this may be an unfortunate reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. See, there are those who gather together and they even operate under the name of Jesus Christ, under the banner of the gospel, but they haven't exercised genuine faith or belief in Christ Jesus. See, their faith and their following is really disingenuous. They're not seeking Christ as Lord and Savior, as the one and only way to salvation and eternal life. You see, like this sign, thirsty crowd, they are disciples in name only. You see, Jesus draws a distinct dividing line between real and false disciples. See, in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says this. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Brothers and sisters, it is only those who continue in the word of Christ that show themselves to be legitimate disciples. It is only those who endure, who cling to Christ and abide in his word that display their authenticity as followers of the Lord Jesus. You see, com continued obedience to Jesus' words matters. And I don't mean that in a legalistic way. That's not what I'm saying here. But obedience to the word of God should be an attribute that accompanies anyone who deems himself a disciple of Jesus. I cannot state that any plainer than that. We must, if we are legitimate followers of Christ, abide in and by his word. Amen, somebody. Sadly, as we continue to read this encounter, as we will find out that this was not the case for the great majority of this crowd. There is no continuing with Christ or enduring in his word. They hear the difficulty of his word and they have no desire to abide by it or to live by it or to continue with him. You see, understanding that these are not genuine disciples helps us to establish the appropriate framework for this passage as we move forward. The text tells us that these disciples found the words of Jesus to be hard, 
to be difficult. They say this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, in the Greek, the word that's used for hard actually translates to rough, stiff, or harsh. So I want to be clear here. What Jesus had said to them wasn't necessarily difficult to understand. It was just difficult for them to reconcile. And that is the case with the Word of God from time to time, is it not? It is jagged. It is abrasive. It cuts deep and exposes us. You know, I had a preacher tell me one time, the Word of God isn't hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. It's just hard to swallow. And here we see that principle applied. These disciples are having a hard time swallowing the words of Jesus. And I think they are beginning to understand Jesus' claims, even if it's just on a surface level. They're at least beginning to see that following Christ is more than just hanging around him, having some sort of superficial relationship. It's more than just following Jesus, hoping that you're going to benefit from his divine power. You see, genuine fellowship with Christ requires so much more than that. But they're unable to reconcile his words. They're offended by Christ. This claim he's made to be the bread of life, this exhortation to drink his blood and eat of his flesh, him saying that he has come down from heaven sent by the Father, it's all too much for these people. They can't bear his words. But so it is with those who are unregenerate, those who see and hear with ears of flesh. You see, apart from this new birth and the quickening of the Holy Spirit, the natural man cannot and will not hear the words of Christ as anything other than offensive. See, Jesus' claim to be the only way to God, his challenge to lay down your sin and rebellion, to pick up your cross and follow him, his claim to have all authority in heaven and on earth, to sinful, rebellious men, this is offensive. It is jarring. It is off-putting. So much so that even those who would identify themselves as his disciples begin to grumble and complain about what Jesus has said, much like the Jews or the Pharisees did back in verse 41. But see, Jesus knows this. Jesus knew they were disrupted by his words. Let's look at verse 61. It says, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense to this? Now, this is a rhetorical question. Jesus doesn't need them to answer it in the affirmative. You see, as we learn back in John chapter 2, Jesus has divine or supernatural knowledge of mankind. See, in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, Jesus says, or it says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, Jesus knows the hearts of men, even those men who claim to believe in him because he is God. You see, he has this divine knowledge of the human heart. Jesus knew these guys were offended by him and his words. So how does he respond to them? Let's look at verse 62. It says, then Jesus says, then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was 
before. Now, earlier in this discourse, Jesus had pointed to his heavenly origin. He had spoken about being the true bread that had come down from heaven. But now he asked, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, what is Jesus doing here? Why does he say this to them? You see, Jesus understands that his claim to have a divine or a heavenly origin, to have come down from heaven, is one of the things that's crucial to their rejection of him. So what does Jesus do? He says to them, what if you were to see me go up into heaven? Would that convince you that heaven is actually my home? Would seeing me ascend to the Father where I was before lead you to believe that I am indeed the Son of God? Now, when Jesus offers this rhetorical question, see, the way the sentence is composed suggests that this is open-ended. See, there's a condition, but there is no conclusion. So it is most likely that Jesus points to this ascension here as a way of uh, suggesting that seeing him ascend to heaven still would not convince them to believe. In fact, it would only compound their sin of unbelief. See, this is the problem with those who are buried under the weight of unbelief. You see, apart from the sovereign work of God opening their hearts to his truth and revelation, they cannot be convinced. See, it wouldn't matter what sign Jesus performed. They would not believe. Right? Jesus even points to this reality in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, and he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, even Jesus' most miraculous accomplishment, his most miraculous sign of his wonderful resurrection, they still would not believe. It would not be enough to convince them. See, it's important to note that as we look at this text and Jesus pointing to his ascension, there are commentators who uh, believe that Jesus is referring to his ascending as applying to his crucifixion. And the reason they make that connection is because in John's gospel, the language of ascension or being lifted up is often uh, linked to the cross. Now, this is certainly a plausible interpretation or theory. And why? Because think about it. These guys are offended. Well, what's more offensive than the cross? You see, to the natural man, the crucified Savior draws disdain. People don't want that. They hate it. It's offensive. You know, commentator D.A. Carson is helpful here as he points to this reality and he commentates on this particular text. He says, quote, if the disciples find Jesus' claims authority, and even his language offensive, what will they think when they see Jesus on the cross, his way of ascending to the place where he was before? That is the supreme scandal, end quote. See, if they couldn't handle Jesus' words, his claim to be the bread of life, if they couldn't handle his command to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood in order to have life, they certainly could not stand the sight of a crucified Messiah. See, just the thought of that concept is more than men can bear. See, the cross is a great stumbling block to the lost. See, Paul describes it as folly to those who are perishing, foolishness. But why? Why is this crucified Savior so offensive? See, because a crucified Savior would imply that I am a sinner who needs saving. 
And that would mean that I can't save myself, that I can't do it on my own. Regardless of all of my talents, all of my abilities, all of my accomplishments and successes, I am dependent upon the righteousness of another. That is offensive. That flies in the face of our pride, our desire to rule and govern ourselves, saying that we need someone outside of us to do the saving. That is offensive to natural, unregenerate men. See, to those that are being saved, the cross is a reminder of the severity of our sin. It's a reminder of the just and righteous wrath of God, but also the love of, that he has for his people. But see, to those who reject Christ, those who have not experienced a divine intervention, the scandal of the cross draws feelings of hatred and disdain. Our natural inclination is to want nothing to do with this crucified Christ. See here, these disciples are offended by Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And in verse 63, he points to the fundamental problem, the reason they cannot listen to his words. Let's look at verse 63. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So these folks have heard Jesus' words, but they've failed to grasp the greater theological implications of what he's saying. They didn't have the ability to understand his discourse because they comprehend merely from a human perspective. So here Jesus reminds them and us that it is the spirit who gives life. See, here what Jesus is doing is he was referring to the sovereign work of God and revealing truth to men. Jesus says it's the spirit that gives life. In, flat, in fact, the flesh is of no help at all. Brothers and sisters, please do not miss the implications of what Christ is saying here. See, simply operating under the leading of our flesh, we'll, we will never be able to discern the things of God. We can be assured that no person will receive life, at least not the eternal and abundant spiritual life that Jesus is referring to here by any efforts of the flesh. See, when our focus and our attention are solely on what the flesh can accomplish, on what we can do, see, we are certain to misunderstand, to misapply, and totally just miss the significance of what God is saying, just like those in this crowd. See, furthermore, we certainly cannot seek to achieve uh, salvation by any works of the flesh. It is all a divine act of God initiated by the Spirit. See, Jesus has already pointed to this reality back in John chapter 3. When he has that conversation with Nicodemus, he tells him, you must be born again. Born of what? Of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. Jesus says that's what gives life. Brothers and sisters, praise God for the work of the Spirit. And praise God for resurrecting dead men. Praise God that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that the dead, that those that are dead in their sin, but according to his grace and good pleasure, we are raised and resurrected to eternal life. See, if the burden to save was placed on the efforts of me, we'd all be doomed. If the burden to save, if the burden to give life was based on human effort, based on the flesh, 
none of us would have any hope. Praise God that his spirit is at work bringing dead men to life. Amen? See, Jesus says here that his words are spirit and life. You see, it is the words of Christ, the truths about himself and salvation that actually give life. See, whether this group of disciples realize it or not, he is providing them with the way to eternal life, the way to be justified, to be right before God, to inherit the kingdom. He says, it is spirit and life are in my words. But unfortunately, for even those who would identify themselves as disciples, the spirit had not revealed Christ to them. That's why Jesus says there are those of you here who do not believe in verse 64. He says, some of you do not believe. Again, it's important to remember who he's talking to, those who were introduced in verse 60 as disciples. You see, even to the degree that they had outwardly designated themselves as disciples, Jesus still says to them, you do not believe. And then the second half of verse 64 in this parenthetical statement, Jesus says, th it says this, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now, this points us again to the reality of God's or Jesus's divine knowledge as God, his supernatural knowledge. But this also points us to his eternal plan of salvation. See, this text says from the beginning. See, just as Christ knows those who had been given to him by God the Father before the foundations of the world, those who had been imparted eternal life, he also has full knowledge of those who would die in their sin, those who will remain in the sin of unbelief and will reject him. He has full knowledge of that reality. See, Jesus knows those who do not believe, even in spite of their best external efforts, even those who call themselves disciples, those who call themselves Christians. See, they can put on a show. They can do everything that seems to be uh, in, in line with Christianity. Everything that seems to conform to the beliefs of the Bible, they can do all of the things. Jesus has knowledge of a man's heart, and he knows whether you believe or not. He knows if you're a genuine follower of Christ. See, think about the text where it says, hey, Jesus, didn't we uh, cast out demons in your name and we performed all of these miracles in your name and we did all of the stuff in your streets, we taught, we did these things, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a terrifying verse because that tells us there are going to be people who outwardly or externally do all of the right things, but God hasn't drawn them to Christ. They're not his. And the Lord knows. And here the text says he knew who would betray him. Now we can apply the idea of betrayal here in the immediate context to the disciples who would abandon him. That's what he's referring to. Although the greatest betrayal would come at the hands of Judas Iscariot. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. You see, as we arrive at verse 65, Jesus offers yet another reason or a reminder for their inability to believe. Verse 65, he says, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
You see here, the Lord Jesus is again pointing to the sovereign work of God and salvation. And I won't spend a whole lot of time on this verse only because Jesus has already made this point. He made this point back in verse 37 and again in verse 44. So he's clearly made it plain. He has clearly stated that apart from God's divine intervention, a man cannot believe. See, unless God initiates the saving work of the Spirit to change a man's heart and renew his mind, he will not believe in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is just simply doubling down on his statement here. But this reminds us too, Jesus is not caught off guard by their unbelief and rejection. It's expected. In fact, it is the only response to a person who hasn't been drawn to him by God the Father. See, one thing that's interesting to note here is the language that's used. The word granted. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Now, I want you to think about the word granted. If my kids come to me and they say, hey, Dad, can we go outside and play? And I say, yes, that's fine. You guys go out in the yard and play for a little while. See, I've granted them now the ability to go do that. I've given them permission to now be able to go outside and play. See, the word granted here illuminates for us this glorious and humbling reality that even our belief in Jesus is a gift given to us by God. And I pray that that reality is not lost on any of us this morning, at least any of us that are in here that call ourselves Christians, that have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that truth isn't lost on you today. Listen, coming to faith in Christ is not possible because of some autonomous human decision that we've made of our own accord. You see, faith in Christ is a gift that is graciously granted to us by Creator God. See, God's the initiator in salvation. Salvation is the work of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. And praise God for his grace and his mercy and his loving provision in imparting the gift of belief to all of those in here that call ourselves true disciples of Christ. And finally, as we get to verse 66, we see the response of these disciples Verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, it would be expected that Jesus' enemies, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, would be offended by his words and have no dealings with him. However, you would expect those who call themselves disciples to at least seek some sort of clarification surrounding Jesus' words before they just decide to depart and abandon him. But that's not the case here. You see here, the difficult statements of Christ have served their purpose. They disclose the true position and intentions of these disciples. And their response was to turn away. When faced with the challenging and hard truths of what Jesus is saying to them, they decide to depart from him. They leave. Right? And their response here shows two things. It shows one, what it is they truly desire. And number two, it shows that they are not genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. See, one commentator is helpful here, and he offers a profound yet short statement that I think encap encapsulates what's actually happening here. He says, quote, what they wanted, he would not give, and what he offered, they would not receive, end quote. 
I think that's such a powerful statement in a beautiful way to summarize exactly what's happening in the hearts and minds of these disciples. Right? See, Jesus' words expose their intentions, and they decide to depart from Christ. They leave him behind. You see, faced with the decision to either remain or to flee, they choose the latter. And unfortunately, this is the case with many that would identify themselves as Christians. You see, they love the things that Jesus does. They love him as this miracle worker and this healer and this provider, this loving and forgiving God-man. But Jesus, the judge, they want nothing to do with. See, the Jesus that has come to fulfill and uphold the law, the Jesus that speaks to obedience to his commands, the Jesus that addresses sin and rebukes the self-righteous, see, that Jesus they want nothing to do with. The Jesus that calls us to a life of self-denial and holiness, man, I don't want any parts of that Christ. And they depart from Jesus. They turn away. Brothers and sisters, I would ask you this morning to consider your own relationship with Christ. When you sit down to read his word and you're faced with the challenging and hard truths of what Jesus says, when you realize he's not calling you to a life of ease and comfort and convenience, but a life of sacrifice, humility, and self-denial, total surrender and devotion to him, when you realize that that's what Jesus is calling you to, Do you stay or do you flee? See, when following Christ creates circumstances in your life that are less than favorable, do you turn from him or do you cling more tightly to him? You see, how we respond when faced with the difficult words of Christ is so telling. See, it exposes whether we are true disciples or if we're like this crowd who will quickly abandon him when he says hard and difficult things that brush up against our desires and our sensibilities. See, these folks had committed themselves to Christ, but only on a superficial level, which is why they could not maintain following him. See, the Apostle John even writes of these false followers in his first epistle, in 1 John 2.19. I'm sure a lot of us are very familiar with this text. It says this, They went out from among us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. You see, their departure here marks their identity as false disciples. See, it is only those who abide in his word, who continue in faithfulness, enduring with Christ, walking with him as disciples to the end. It is only those who are true, faithful disciples of Christ. You know, I often have conversations with people, and this is one of the uh, questions that's commonly asked. Man, I had a family member who was a pastor or a preacher or this devout Christian, and one day he just woke up and decided he was done with Jesus, and he left the church. Doesn't that mean he lost his salvation? And I say, no, that just proves he wasn't among us. Now, if he returns, praise God, praise God. But if not, he's only marked himself as a false disciple. So we've talked about it even here in John 6. Jesus will lose none that God has given to him. He preserves the saints. He holds us fast. 
So these disciples that decided to depart, they didn't lose their salvation. They were never saved to begin with. That's why they left Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, their response to Christ served to reveal their true identity. See, as I said, there are two responses to Jesus that we see here. The first was to abandon him. And as we finish our time together this morning, we'll look at the second response to Christ demonstrated by his closest followers. Let's look at verses 67 and 68. And it reads, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So what happens is Jesus, in seeing these disciples depart from him, he turns to the 12, and the 12 is referring to the 12 disciples, the men that Jesus had chosen to walk with him. It says he turns to these men, and he asks them a poignant and heart-searching question. He says, do you want to go away as well? You see, the 12, they had also heard the difficulty of Jesus' words, and they understood the magnitude, at least on a surface level, of what he was saying. And he essentially says to them, they're leaving. Here's your opportunity. Do you want to go as well? Now, brothers and sisters, I think this is a great question to consider as we follow Christ. I encourage you to ponder on that question and to search your own heart before answering this question. Again, I want you to consider what it means to fully commit yourself to walking with Christ. Consider what it means to abide in his word, to endure with him faithfully in this life in obedience and holiness. And ask yourself, do I really want to do this or do I want to go away as well? I mean, this is an appropriately timed question. But what a magnificent response from Peter. He looks to the Lord Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What a beautiful reply from Peter. You know, in essence, Peter says, Lord, what other alternatives do we have? Where else can we go? It is only you who have the words of eternal life. See, even if Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't fully grasp the implications of all that Jesus is saying, they at least understood what he said back in verse 63, that he had the words of spirit and life. They at least comprehended that. They knew it wasn't only him that they could find life. You see, for Peter and the Lord's true disciples, they had made up their minds. You see, the identity, the majesty, the worth of Christ was a settled conclusion. They were committed to following him. They knew that only his words could give life. And regardless of what other saviors or messiahs might come, they could not turn aside and go elsewhere. See, Peter's words uh, exercise a certain level of faith, a particular level of faith here. You see, just as the false disciples had turned away finally and decisively, Peter and the 12, with the exception of Judas, had decided to follow Jesus decisively and finally. They had total confidence in Christ. You see, in verse 69, that's why Peter says, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One 
of God. What a beautiful profession this is. See, this is even similar to Peter's proclamation in Matthew chapter 16. See, there Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they respond and say, some, some think you're Elijah or that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, no, no, no. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter even responds there and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, the matter, again, it was settled. Peter was convinced. He says, they know and believe that Jesus is indeed the one who has descended from heaven, sent into the world by God to give life to those that are his. They know he's the son of God. They know he's the long-awaited Savior and Messiah. And he says, Lord, where else would we go? Brothers and sisters, do you have that kind of devotion to Christ? Do we see God, do we see Christ, the Son of God, as Peter and the disciples did, as the all-sufficient, all-satisfying fountain of living water who has the words of eternal life? Do you believe that life is found in Christ and Christ alone? Do you believe that wholeheartedly? Does Christ feed your soul? Do you believe, like Peter believed, there's nowhere else we can go? You have the words of eternal life, not philosophers, not politicians, not scientists, not instructors or professors. It is only Christ Jesus and his words that give life. Do we believe that this morning? See, Peter believed that. The disciples believed that, obviously with the exception of Judas. Before we continue and before we commend Peter too much, as he so often was, he was a bit overzealous. See, he speaks boldly in making this wonderful declaration about Christ. However, his words are a bit pretentious. He says, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, this can easily come across as though the 12 disciples are somehow superior to those false disciples that turned away from Christ. But see here, Jesus takes it upon himself to remind Peter that they can take no credit for their believing in him. Let's look at verse 70. Jesus answered, him, answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? So here we find Jesus pointing to the reality again of God's sovereign choice or what we call this idea of election. See, if you recall, though John does not record it in his gospel account, if you remember the call of the disciples, which is recorded in the other gospels, the synoptic gospels. See, Jesus approached them. Remember, they were fishermen. They were just on their boats, living out their lives, following their occupations, and Jesus goes to them. They had had no inclinations or desires to pursue Christ. They did not choose Jesus. He chose them. Furthermore, it's important to note they hadn't done anything significant or special for Jesus to stop what he was doing and to go to these fishermen. It was not based on their doing. You see here, Jesus removes any ability for Peter to suggest that their belief in him is a product of their own efforts. The only reason they had come to know and believe is because the Father had granted that to them. See, God had destined them for salvation. He had graciously given them the gift of belief. It was not, nor shall it ever be, a result of human effort. 
And that's the case with every believer. What a humbling reality that really is. God has lovingly chosen us, not because of anything that we've done, but because he is a God of steadfast love and mercy. He is the initiator of this saving relationship. So here Jesus closes this section with the staggering reminder that his sovereign choice and his divine ordination even included Judas, the one who would betray him. Let's look at verse 70 and 71 again. It says, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now, based on the way that this sentence is arranged in the Greek The way that it is structured, commentators agree that it should probably read, one of you is the devil. And the reason for that is because the Greek word that is used for devil is also used in John chapter 8, verse 44, chapter 13, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 27. And when it's used, it's all three times is referring to Satan, God's ultimate adversary. Now, as I've said, Jesus has a divine and intimate knowledge of every man He knows every man's thought. He knows every man's heart, his motives, his desires. And what Jesus does here is he rightly discerns the motives of Judas, and he identifies him as the source of evil, as a tool of Satan. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. So then the question would be, why does he choose him amongst the twelve? You see, the Lord does nothing casually or flippantly. Everything serves his divine purposes, even Judas and Satan. You see, Judas betraying Jesus was all part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. You see, the wicked actions of Judas under the sway of the evil one are necessary in advancing the Savior to the cross, where he would be lifted up, degraded, persecuted, but ultimately glorified. You see, his betrayal led Jesus to the cross under the divine orchestration of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, even the work of Satan served to accomplish God's will. You know, I had a preacher tell me one time, even the devil is the Lord's devil. See, it all works to achieve God's eternal plan of salvation for his glory. You know, this has been quite a lengthy study, John chapter 6. There is a lot happening here. See, we've covered some pretty heavy theological concepts Jesus has made some profound, challenging statements, things that challenge our comfort level, challenge our doctrine, challenges our beliefs. But as we close our time together this morning, we're reminded from this passage that there are really only two responses to Jesus' words. Either you abide and continue walking with Christ as a true disciple, or you're offended by Jesus. And you're run off by the difficulty of his words and you turn away from him. Listen, if you're in here this morning and you've not looked to Christ in faith, and you have an opportunity to do so even right now, right where you're sitting. See, the word of God invites all who hunger and thirst to come and freely partake, to find eternal and abundant food for your soul. He is extending to you the invitation to live. See, Jesus invites you to eat and drink of him as living water, as the bread of life. 
See, it's the Son of God sent by the Father who's been given all authority. It is Christ and only Christ who has the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that this morning? Are you confident in Christ? Is it settled in your heart, in your mind, in your soul that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Let us be people who confidently trust the Lord Jesus and believe in his words, even when they're difficult and challenging. See, when difficulty and tribulation and crisis arrive, we have a decision to make. You can fight or you can flee. See, even when all others abandon him, let us look to the Lord Jesus and say, like Simon Peter, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful. Thankful for many reasons, Lord, the ways that you provide your sovereign provision, your grace, your mercy, your patience. And we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, who is the way to eternal life, that you've given your son for sinful men and that you've made a way for us to be reconciled. Lord, we thank you for the word that's been written and revealed and given to us. Lord, I pray for anyone in here this morning that may not have a relationship with you. Lord, that as they hear these words, as they come face to face with Jesus Christ, rather than fleeing because his words are difficult, jarring, off-putting, that they would submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ attaching themselves to this glorious Savior, not because of what he can provide physically, but because of the eternal spiritual life that only Christ can give, the redemption of sins. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we as a church, as a people, would live to bring you glory, that we would find value, purpose, meaning, and beauty in all of your words, even the hard ones and that we would have a greater and deeper devotion to you, and that we would realize that we can go nowhere else, for it is only you who gives life. Jesus, we thank you. I pray that you would bless the rest of the time we have here together this morning, and that you would be pleased by this time of worship. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.